Greetings, everyone. I'm excited to introduce Peter Wellens, co-founder and CEO at Revent. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ben. Great to be here. Yeah, great to have you here. So let's dive into your background. Tell us a little bit about your history. Well, my history, like I've, I'm, a, I'm a commercial engineer by from academic background, so to mm -hmm. speak. So a bit of engineering, a bit of economic, a bit of languages. Basically, the university course you take in, 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 in Europe when you don't really know what you want to do. You want to do a little bit of everything. But mostly, it breeds a lot of entrepreneurship. I was lucky enough to do, between my bachelor and my master's, to have a scholarship to also go to Berkeley for a while, where I picked up a number of courses. And that's where I really got, got let's say, infected by the, the startup gene, because I saw that a lot of my... My American co-students, they were a way ahead of the curve of what we were seeing in Europe in terms of starting your own company and really, you know, breeding in that, that more that, that Silicon Valley kind of attitude. And so I managed to bring that back to, 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 to Belgium with me, back to Europe, where I convinced one of my, my co-students to actually start up a company right after we graduated as a commercial engineer. You know, rather than, than you know, going through the whole curriculum, I, I ended up starting up three different companies in succession with different degrees of success. So one was in solar, which was, you know, very big at the time in Belgium because it was starting to get heavily subsidized by the government. So the business case became very positive overnight. And we managed to, to you know, capture a lot of that demand in our hometown. After the government got wise to the fact that they were oversubsidizing, that market also crashed. So that was a very valuable lesson for us. I call it my MBA in entrepreneurship after having come through that ordeal. And that's when, when actually my focus got pulled more into the direction of software. So everything, you know, software had to had to offer. And my background being more and more, well, actually my, my love for the business being more and more on the commercial side, like telling the story, making sure like both on the marketing and sales side, like we got a good cadence going. I started getting more in touch with the product builders because I realized like in order to get, you know, something happening in software, you always need both of it. Like you've got great, let's say product builder founders and you've got great commercial founders, but what I, what I saw in my, in my neighborhood and also from the success story that I admired was that there was always like this complementary team where the best of both worlds was, was combined. So I was lucky to get in touch and, and start building a network of, 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 you know, potential future CTOs and product builders and people who were really, you know, building software and, and looking for people to help them bring it to market or see whether there was a fit with, with potential customers. So that led me to, to starting up a social network that's called, called Chestnote. It was a very bold endeavor looking back on it now, but I was like, I was 25. I, you know, we were riding high on the success stories of Instagram, Snapchat and Facebook were like, you know, why not, why not do it for, for Europe ourselves? Managed to get, get some funding going. We raised just shy of about 1 million euros. I grew the team to about 20 people. But in the end, we, we you know, were taught a valuable lesson that in order to scale that marketing-wise and internationalize it beyond Belgium, and Belgium is quite a small country. So we were big in Belgium, but that didn't really mean a lot for the European and definitely the global scale. Once we started trying to scale up our marketing, we, we were very surprised by the budget required to start out-competing the more vested and let's say the more, the more incumbent social networks. So... That also didn't end in like a big like exit or big success story, but it taught us a lot of great lessons along the way. And we managed to, to you know, outplace a lot of the key team members to great jobs afterwards. So it was a nice ride. After that, got into, got into the freelance circuit for a while. I did mostly a CCO for hire. I was always like the, the, the commercial officer for different software startups which is where I really got into a taste of the scale-up world. So I didn't manage to get companies to the scale-up 
stage myself, but mm-hmm. I did manage to get on board through the freelance circuit. And that's where I met my current CTO, actually. So Alex is the is the let's say the the, the technical brain and also the the, the spiritual founder of what, what Revan does today. I met him in the freelance circuit and he contacted me almost 18 months ago now with with a story where he said, listen, Peter, I know that what you like to do is you know team up with builders to you know to to get to a point like where where can where we can create a great company. And he said, I've been frustrated by something that's been happening in e-commerce for the last 15 years. And I'd really want to take a crack at solving it and building a company around it, but I'd love to, you know, I love your help setting up mm-hmm. the, the commercial side of the business, etc. And of course I was very intrigued. And the, the and then if that's okay, I'll maybe I'll 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 jump into explaining what Revan does now. Yeah, or, let's pause or, pause for a yeah, second. I'm sure, curious, is is, Ch- is Chestnut still around or is it the shutdown? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it got acquired by the, the lead investor after it became clear that, you know, we, we didn't have enough working capital to sustain the business on the, on the, 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 the short to medium run with, you know, the, all the costs that were coming our way and our burn rate. Basically, and I have to be very, you know, transparent about it, our, our sales cadence was not able to catch up, like our revenue wasn't able to catch up with the costs that were on the horizon. Mm-hmm. And so rather than waiting until we got to zero, we saw, we saw like the, we saw the bad times coming about six months ahead. And we had kind of an emergency meeting and we said, listen, we can try to raise again, but it's going to be a down round. There's going to be a lot of pain. There's going to be a lot of layoffs involved. And we also saw the competitive landscapes change a lot faster than we were equipped for. Or what we can do is, you know, we can end in, end in style, you know, call it a day and because in the end, all of the investors that were on board also had to agree to either one of the strategies. And in the second scenario, a lot of the, some of the investors were able to recoup a part of their investments. And the lead investor said, listen, I'll compensate them. I'll buy the IP. And it's not around in the, in the current form anymore, mm-hmm. but some of the technology is being used in derivative software companies. So, and I, and, and I think because of the choice we made there, we're still on very good terms with all of the investors. So rather than burning through it, we were able to give them a consolation prize, so to speak. Yeah, that's great. I have a great experience, great background. And yeah, let's let's talk about Revan. What what tell us a little bit about what Revan does. Well, Revan is basically what we've, we've been called many names, well, many, many metaphors to try to describe it. But the mm-hmm. best way I can I I think that the one that I like most is we're like a security guard or like a guard dog for your web shop so if you if we go and build a physical store let's say we want to we want to sell on a sell hardware equipment then we're going to post the security guards install some smoke detectors uh, get, get, get a security system in place to make sure that you know nothing happens that can affect the revenue of our store but if you do that with if you want to do that for e-commerce you have all of these tools that can manage and monitor the infrastructure and let's say the back end of your store, things like Datadog, New Relic, you name it, it's there. But on the front end, on the operational side, you know, tracking your key metrics, like add to carts, abandoned carts, people looking at products, et cetera, et cetera. That's something that right now is very hard to track in real time. Mm-hmm. Like most of the people I talk to, when I ask them the questions, like, okay, who's, you, who's watching your who's watching your web shop when you're sleeping, right? That's like the, the funny mm-hmm. way to ask then they're always like, oh yeah, you know, there's Mike from marketing. He has this dashboard or, oh, we look at Google Analytics. Mm-hmm. But then the second question is, but wait, you know that 
Google Analytics has a 24-hour delay, right? You're like, oh, yeah. yeah. And even with GA4, right, the, new, the new iteration, you still have to manually set all of these notifications yourself. You know, it's a lot of work. And then what we do is we do it in real time and make sure that whenever something is going awry, you know it within five minutes. And if you have this web shop that does 100 bucks a day, that's not a big deal. But it's some of the web shops that we're working with, they do 100 to $150,000 in a day. So being able to react an hour early or even half an hour early can make all the difference in yeah. the world. So so say I have an e-commerce store, I'm selling whatever, I'm selling socks online. And yeah. what kind of security risk are you protecting against? Like attacks against the website, uh, like some sort of you know credit card fraud, what kind of security, what are we protecting against for yeah. these e-commerce now, stores? Yeah, that's an excellent question because, because it allows me also to make the distinction between we're not a cybersecurity firm, mm-hmm. but what we are protecting against are risks that impact your operational KPIs. So everything that's revenue-based, that's that's also why our name is Revent, right? we're revenue defenders. Anything that like, if you're a performance marketeer, if you're a head of e-commerce, if you're a founder at an e-commerce store, one of your key metrics we believe, and that's also what we see in the market is always, what's your daily revenue, right? Like like how many customers are actively going all the way through the end of the funnel. And what we're protecting against are risks that that stop people from completing your funnel. And some very concrete examples. We've had a customer where we suddenly saw that their add to carts dropped dramatically on a day where they should have been on, let's let's call it a hundred checkouts or a hundred add to carts per hour. We saw it drop to 20. I was like, this is normal. I was like 80% below what, what is normal. Mm-hmm. And so we alerted them to it in Slack. That's that's our main UI. Mm-hmm. So everything happens in the back end, but we either post warnings on Slack or on Teams, depending on what stack you use. And they immediately, by clicking through on it, they saw you know something's not right here. Right? So they were alerted and they checked. And so what happened? The there was an error in the third party application that they used for the checkout flow that what they had failed to update, which caused everybody on the website to, to be unable to do, to, to do a checkout. And okay. this happened that, on a Saturday night. So, yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So really revenue operations risk where I'm on an e-commerce store, I'm trying to purchase something. I'm, I'm going through the cart process and yes. maybe I can't fill out my address. It's grayed out or whatever it might be. So you're protecting against something where they just can't monitor this all the time. They don't know. They're not looking but yes. you're monitoring that from someone hitting the site to then checking out just to make sure not, you know, plugins, other integrations yeah. aren't broken. That's stopping the checkout process. Yeah. hundred percent. That's, okay. that's clear as it. That, that makes a lot of sense. So, so how, so is there, when you talk to prospects then, is this a, mm-hmm. a clear ROI proposition where you're, you know, helping them not lose revenue due to something in the checkout process then? Mm-hmm. That's how it started out. Mm-hmm. And I think this is, this is something that, that might also be useful for other founders listening. We, we made sure, because both Alex and my co-founder and I, it's not our first startup. What we learned is that we cannot be married to the first ROI calculation that we put out there. So we knew like this makes sense. So what you just said makes perfect sense. And that was mm-hmm. our, our hypothesis going in. Mm-hmm. But we had to be very tough on ourselves 
and maintain this is just a hypothesis like if this is not working we have to let it go and now almost a year in we're at the point where we're starting to let that go so so, so let me explain the the going in it was our pitch was literally like do you know who's watching your, your operations at night and mostly after a couple of additional questions they were like yeah actually nobody's really watching it in real time let's give Revan the go and then they said how will we know it's working we said oh ROI is we'll catch a number of mistakes we'll be able to put a monetary value on that and that will justify the license you pay so just like you just also deduced uh -huh. that seemed like a great way to go now what the problem with that was and that that's that's i think something that 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 should resonate others we we started seeing that the more exciting and let's say modern and 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 great companies we work with the more their process was streamlined and smooth and so the less anomalies and mistakes we found which meant that the roi calculation became increasingly hard as we were talking to more modern and more stack optimized companies. But what we did see is that they were still excited about Revan, but for other reasons. So rather than sticking to our guns and you know, keeping to that ROI calculation, we, we took a step back and said, okay, maybe we'll have to let this go and start thinking like, okay, what, where's the real ROI here? So what I did last, last year is I, I spoke to over 50 performance marketeers, some of them which were already our customers and others which I just approached on LinkedIn as, you know, like, hey, let's let's have a chat. I'm, I'm doing some market research. And what we noticed is that apart from, you know, being the bearer of bad news, as in, hey, something's going wrong, Ben, you have to fix this. Hey, there's a fire going on. The more performant companies also really valued the fact that we could give them peace of mind that things were going right, which totally blew our minds at first because we thought, okay, where's the value there? But with so many external factors having impact on your conversion rate, tool like Revent that can take a look at 24-7 at you know, what, what should be your normal and whether or not you're like still coloring in, in between the lines and telling you at the end of the day, hey, you know, today was a good day or an okay day. This is what we caught, nothing major so far. You did a great job. Mr. or Mrs. Marketeer or head of e-commerce, like that's starting to become an ROI on its own because the change that we're creating now, and so that, that comes back to the ROI calculation, ROI calculation is how much time is spent in dashboards just looking for like, did anything go wrong or not? We're taking that, we're, we're saving a lot of the time in people like going through dashboards. And sometimes it's people saying, Oh, you know, every day starts with 15 minutes of sifting through dashboards. It's kind of boring because if we don't find something, it's lost time. With Revent, we just see, okay, nothing, no, no, no blips on the radar. Cool, can start my day. And yeah. in bigger companies, that time adds up. So yeah, that makes makes a ton of sense. You know, that peace of mind. And so when you mentioned this, but when did you found Revent? What it was 2022, 2021? We we officially incorporated the company in March of 2022. So last okay. year, but we've, we've, as, as it often goes, of course, while we were still busy with other projects, we started, the conversation started about, about eight months prior to that. So spiritually, it was a little bit earlier and to be completely fair to Alex, yeah. our CTO, he thought of the idea, I think even, even three years before that, because his main frustration as a CTO, like I already mentioned at the start, was that as a CTO, he was often blamed for things going wrong mm -hmm. and he was always blamed after the fact. So when the people at the marketing department or the sales department of the e-commerce companies where you worked 
for you know started to figure out oh things were going wrong it was often a couple of hours or a couple of days after the damage was already done mm-hmm. so it's always left you know with the blame of something that was already irreparable and he said what if there was a tool that could tell me things were starting to go wrong after a couple of minutes yeah and that's how, how the idea of revenant was born yeah that's great and where is revenant located are you remote do you have a headquarters we have a headquarters in antwerp it's a city in the north of of belgium it's very close to the netherlands very close to france very close to germany which which you know which works out fine because because in, in europe and the netherlands and, and germany are actually the two biggest e-commerce hubs followed closely by the uk but we do work almost almost fully remote in the sense that we have an office that 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 we rent out it's more like a co-working space where the team can can get together mostly me and alex the cto we try to see each other there about twice a week mm-hmm. um, but we also have some developer working out of brazil and alex is has a brazilian background as well so mm-hmm. we have a physical headquarters but we run the company in a remote way okay and what's your current team size currently including freelancers we're we're at six people okay so six. yeah yeah the so it's, it's it's yeah yeah so it's me me and alex and then we have two developers who are working for us full time and then we have two two experts one on the strategic part that really helps us in opening up the markets and has helped us also with fundraising and one ai expert and data scientist that's helping us with the modeling and okay. has has helped us with you know uh, getting you know getting taking in and analyzing the millions of events that we process every day. And anything you want to share around the the size of your company revenue size or ARR? Yeah, I can be I can be very open about that. At the, at the moment at the moment where we're still running limited trials. So if you go to our website revenue.ai, you'll see that there's no no way yet to to subscribe or to self-service into getting the solution. You always have to go through through me, through the founder. Mm-hmm. That's because we're still at the stage where we're optimizing the product before we want to go to, go to market. So we're, we're right now we have about 20, 20 clients, some of some of whom have already committed to a license after the end of their trial. But as those trials are, are ending in the next couple of months, so far the ERR is zero. Okay. So we're still early at that at that stage. Of course, if we if we do this podcast again in a year, I'll be able to give you give you a, yeah. a nice number. Hopefully, everything goes well. But 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 the good thing is we've 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 worked in a lean way from the very start. So the minute we the minute we got founded, that's the, the moment we started finding first users saying, mm-hmm. "Listen, you want to partner in building this with us? They get great discounts. They get great additional services." And because we were able to do some market research beforehand. And we do have some network already in Europe because of our previous company experience. We managed to get the first 10 customers relatively fast mm-hmm. and get our model started on real real commercial data from the very start. So uh, yeah, that's great. And, and how much capital have you raised to date? To date, from external sources, we've raised 1 million euro. Mm-hmm. And as founders, so, so me, Ali, the fourth co-founder, we, we put up 220,000 to start the company. So all the capital combined is about 1.2 million euros. And I think that's roughly $1.2 million at this point because okay. the exchange rate is so, yeah. is so great. <laughs> yeah. And so the founders put in the initial capital, get the company going, then raised $1 million or 1 million euros. Yeah. And yeah. what was that trigger 
to say we need to raise a million euros at that point yeah. in time? Yeah, that's a great question. The short answer is we promised ourselves to raise from strength. And strength for us was that the initial 10 customers that we were working with that were, were you know, trying out the, the first prototype, that they would commit to becoming, converting into paying users at the end of their trials. So it was messy in the sense that we knew that, that from experience that raising capital is not something that you just click on and then you have got capital. It's, it's often a three to six month process. So we started already wooing investors and we started you know, telling them about what we were doing, but we knew that the trigger was gonna be those letters of intent, those testimonials, Mm-hmm. those customers that would be willing to talk to to investors so what we had you know we made a list of the key people like as high as we can like the, the the heads of the companies like the country managers the ceos and it was my personal mission as ceo to say okay we want to get at out of these 10 we want to get as much of them primed to take an investor call and then it's up to us to make sure that they don't have to talk 20 investors that we already you know, break the funnel down and say, okay, these are the ones that we really want to have in our cap table. And, and so to get back to your question, mm-hmm. like, like the, the, it's that trigger, the fact that we got customers excited enough to put their reputation on the line for us saying, okay, I'll talk to an investor. I'll tell them like, this is something we really want. And then we believe in that, that told us that we were working on something viable. And it also told the investors like, okay, this is, this is de-risking the, you know, our investment considerably. Because those were companies that were doing 50, 100, 200 million euro in yearly revenue. So those, those were like big players. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, combined with, with the track record of mainly Alex, who has you know, built some impressive products in the past, especially at this stage, early in the company, they're, they're, they're investing in the, in the potential staying power of the product. And, and Alex was, was you know, able to, to wow them also with, it, with his track record. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you were wooing investors, but you had customers on trial, say 10 customers trialing the product, mm-hmm. trying to get as many to commit to paying. And so they're in this process. And then as you start to raise, you're having the investors talk to these customers, your trial customers who are ready to commit to tell the investors, yeah, we like the yeah. product, we're going to pay. And that gave you that momentum to say, convince the investors that you have, have something going with this product then. Exactly. The, 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 you know, the, the, the best thing ever is, of course, if you already have ARR, but then the second best thing is that it's like, don't believe me. Like, of course, I'll, I'll say how awesome our company is. Like, believe the people who are trialing it, who, are, who don't really have a vested interest yet. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, love that story. And, and Pierre, any lessons learned in that million-dollar raise that you want to share with other founders? And let me think on that. There's one personal lesson that I would mm-hmm. that I would 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 like to share here. And without naming any names, of course, there I'm 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 a very I'm a very commercial oriented person. And what I would advise founders, whether they're first time or or, or, or you know already raised multiple times, is that do take into account the difference in raising from angels versus venture capitalists. Because I found out the hard way that venture capitalists can handle rejection far more elegantly than business angels. And I made the mistake of you know, not discerning between the two. 
Whereas, you know, it's, it's when you raise, it's like a funnel. Like if you want to do it right, I think you have to make sure that you're not dependent on just one or two VCs because then they can control the entire narrative. You have to make sure that when you raise from strength, you have some options and you can weigh them against each other. And I learned that VCs are okay. Like that's just the rules of the game. They know you're talking with others and it's fine. But in our network, we also had some business angels, some people we had great relationships with. But then in the end, when the puzzle started to form, like, okay, this is going to work. These people know each other. They want to work with each other. There were some angels that did not make the cut, so to speak. And a mistake I made, and I would advise others not to make, is that I waited way too long to tell them that. So what, and then I made some calls. I said, listen, they're Mr. or Mrs. VC. Sorry, you didn't make it. And they were like, ah, too bad, you know, good luck. But when I came to the angels, they were at that time, you know, we were talking for a couple of months already. They were so invested. They were so disappointed that it really, you know, it really turned the relationship sour. Mm. And that's, that's something that I, if whenever, if I could back and reverse it, that's something I would have avoided by being way more transparent, way earlier on, especially towards the business angels who are private persons and not corporations. So and then a, a second tip and a more general one is, I, I think you all know that, that right now we're in the startup winter. Evaluations, especially in software have, have, you know, have dropped dramatically. And that's, that's a blessing and a curse. It's a curse in the fact that you know, the days of the crazy valuations are just over. That's, but it's a blessing because now it's the dawn of the rational startup. It's the dawn of the, you know, capital efficient and, you know, by the, like the default alive startup. That's something I heard, which I really like. Like rather than being reliant on the next round, mm-hmm. we have to be reliant on being bootstrapped and being, being capital, in, capital efficient. But when you're raising the key figure that we hinged our entire round on was the maximum amount of dilution that we were willing to accept. And we, it, made, it made raising a lot easier for me and Alex, for Alex and I, because in previous companies, what, what, what happened is like the, the dilution constantly shifted and it was really used as a, as, a, as, a, as a bargaining chip. So, but what we did is, okay, this is the maximum amount of percentage that we want to dilute for us to stay motivated. So for example, we only want to dilute 20% or 25%, depending on where you are. And because we really stood our ground there, we managed to get started off with a lot of VCs and also the VCs that ended up investing uh, on a very respectful basis because they will try like how far can they push you like what kind of conditions can they can they can they let's say barter on and because we said listen this is it there's no negotiation room if you don't like it fine but then we won't be able to work together by holding sticking to our guns on that valuation part we were able to you know throughout the entire process you know at least at least have the conf- confidence that you know whatever the other clauses and other conditions that's something that will s- remain motivating for us and for 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 the other founders so mm-hmm. i know I, I made it a long winded points but basically dilution i think is one of the one of the cornerstones of your negotiation if, and if you can agree on that with your co-founders that's a very strong position to take Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that insight. So angels versus VCs and those relationships and that dilution, what you'd accept. So Peter, really, really appreciate that insight. So as we wrap up here, what's next coming up for Revend? 
Well, we're still, we're, we're now on our third cohort of trial users. So the initial 10 has now already been, been supplemented by 10 additional ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we, we scoped a little bit farther than just Belgium. And so now it's more, more, more European. And at, at the moment, we're, we're, we're creating our third and final cohort. So if any of the listeners or if, if you might know any e-commerce companies that, that might be triggered by what they've heard, they can feel free to reach out. Hey, we're going to select about 10, 10 more. Two, two of them are, two spots are already taken, so, so eight more. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that for the next three months, they will, they will also join the, 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 let's say, the test community that we're very actively involved with. And, and an official launch is set for the second half of this year. So that's when it will be publicly available. Okay, and well, that's... Yeah, that's really exciting. So public launch later this year. So Peter, really appreciate you sharing your story, your background. If listeners would like to learn more about your company, where should we send them online? The easiest thing is just to to hit me up on email. It's peter at revent.ai. But also our website, you find some resources there, some more information, and there's a lot of ways to get in touch with me there. So there's some call to action buttons that lead to a Mm -hmm. form that also go to my mail, mailbox or to our team's mailbox. But so, yeah, I, I try to answer any email. It's, it's something that becomes progressively more challenging, yep. but, uh, but I really try to do a good job out of keeping my inbox as clean as possible. So that's the best way to, to reach me today. Well, that's great. If you're in e-commerce, check them out at Revend, R-E-V-E-N-D.ai and email Peter at Peter at Revend.ai if you want to learn more. And Peter, really appreciate you sharing your story today. Thanks, Ben, for giving me the platform. Really, it was a really nice conversation.